0: swivel From Swizzle Media
1: and the Product Bus. This is the Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. We have so much great Bootstrap startup content to bring you that our weekly show is temporarily biweekly. This episode, I'm joined by Amanda Walker, CEO and founder of Aussie Holiday Stays, to talk about the problem with solving problems. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the startup rundown for Tuesday, the 24th of October. The numbers are in. The Australian VC scene has a long way to go in terms of gender equality and inclusivity, and as a result, money is being left on the table. In an opinion piece published to Smart Company, Techstars Managing Director Kirsten Hunter talked about her experience on a panel titled Mythbusters, the Australian Startup Culture Edition. Among other things, the panel discussed the myth that VCs largely make data-driven decisions, and Hunter outlined that despite the clear economic benefits of investing in female-led startups – 67% of pre-seed investments made last quarter in Australia went to all-male teams, with this proportion increasing to 97% across Series B. Electric vehicle taxes are on the chopping block Australia-wide, after the High Court ruled Victoria's tax on electric vehicles unconstitutional. The Guardian reports that the plaintiffs, EV users Chris Vanderstock and Kath Davies, challenged a law requiring EV drivers to pay a tax of 2.8 cents for each kilometre driven every year, in the process, overturning a precedent case from 1974 that found a tax on goods was not an excise. This is likely to have flow-on effects in other states such as New South Wales and WA, who have been preparing to introduce consumption taxes on electric vehicles. In U.S. startup news, TechCrunch reports that Black founders raised just 0.13 of a percent of all capital allocated to U.S. startups in Q3, which is about 39.7 million of 29.9 billion. While there has been an overall downturn in funding in the States, Black founders have been disproportionately affected. This figure represents a significant year-over-year drop with about 1.2% of funds having been allocated to Black founders in Q3 of 2022. Founders of color say this represents a disappointing trend in the funding landscape in that many of the diversity, inclusion, and equity promises made since 2020 have been broken. And finally, could this startup help bridge the knowledge gap in underrepresented communities? Smart Company reported that tech startup Match launched its waitlist at South by Southwest Sydney. The startup, founded by Jessica Box and Susan He, matches learners with trainers with the goal of democratizing knowledge and education. The founders identified a challenge for underrepresented groups in upskilling due to closed networks and systemic barriers, and they hope that Match will provide these groups and others with the opportunity to learn outside of the context of a traditional nine-to-five. Well, if you've been around the startup space for any amount of time you'll be pretty familiar with problems we know that good business ideas solve a problem but we also know that not all problems are good problems for startups to solve to help me unpack this i'm joined by amanda walker amanda is the ceo and founder of aussie holiday stays which is an online booking platform with a heart for aussie holiday accommodation Amanda is going to help us look at the challenges of finding the right problem to solve in the right way with some examples from her own experience. Amanda, welcome to The Bootstrap.
0: Thanks for having me, Scotty. So
1: we talk a lot when we talk about startups, about problems, the problem that we're solving, problem statements. Why is that such a focus and is it really important?
0: I think it's hugely important uh, because you have to have a problem to solve to make people move into your startup and really engage with it. People are very happy to stay with what what they know. So unless there is a problem that you are solving, people aren't going to jump on board what you're doing.
1: I, I love the way that you put that because one thing I think often that we don't or, or we underestimate in the process is even if our idea is amazing, we are asking people to change and people will Stick with systems that are terrible or that they don't like because they either don't see that they can actually do it differently or a process that they can do differently. And so understanding that pain that is going to motivate them to actually fix is the way that I usually frame
0: that that kind of problem statement. Absolutely, And also be prepared to do the hard yards. If you can do it for your consumer to get on board, do it. Don't expect them to do it just even if you make it easy for them, be prepared to put in the hard yards and get them across the line.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. We can unpack that a bit as we <laughs> go. So what are some of the key things that we need to identify in order to be able to develop and test a, a problem statement?
0: You need to talk to your consumers. Now I have a two-way marketplace, so that means I've got two consumers to try and canvas, which doubles the the problems or the the challenges, shall we say. But you need to talk to them and you need to talk to a lot because you will often find there'll be outliers that may not talk to the whole um, and you cannot uh, develop for every single person. So if you are able to talk to a lot, you get the majority of you and that is what you need to be trying to target. Mm. What, what
1: are some ways that you've done that? in terms of validating the ideas for your own business?
0: I was fortunate enough to be inside the short-term accommodation industry with my own holiday home, and that really, really helped. Having a foot in the door where you can relate on a very personal level, helped then expand my network in that industry. So, you know, the old cold call started off with, I'm a holiday homeowner too, and all of a sudden, they're not hanging up the phone. So, Having Mm -hmm. some experience in the industry that you're trying to crack and speak to uh, goes a long way. Mm.
1: I love that that's where you started because often I see those conversations not really happening until someone's trying to sell something. And that is a, a much harder way to validate ideas when you've already kind of done the work, you think that you've got the thing that's going to light people up and then find out that you've got to do that that market research. So that, that's exactly where I want to start with people. Let's unpack that a little bit. How how do you identify who you should be talking to, and particularly like in your instance where, you know, there's more than one persona or more than one type of user? How, how do you identify who you should be talking to in the first place?
0: So mine... It- kind of took its own path because it's chicken and egg. I have to have the houses on the, the platform to then sell to the guests. So my first protocol call was to get the houses and it worked that through. What was really interesting is when I really delved into it, I knew that property managers advertise their properties on their own website. And so I viewed them initially as a competitor. Uh, however, they've been some of the best collaborators. So I would say to anyone starting up, do a full list of who you think your competitors are and then go and talk to them and work out whether they're actually competitors or whether they're going to be some of your best collaborators.
1: It's an interesting concept because there are competitors and perceived competitors. Yes. And perceived competitors can be really bad ways of doing it that people are, are stuck to. I love that you've highlighted that because part of understanding what's there is being prepared to look at other people's stuff and realize, oh, this is really good. We don't need to do that. But maybe there's a way for us to work together rather than I've just got to take you down.
0: A hundred percent. And I think even if you know, if you feel like, you know, the industry inside and out, I think there's preconceptions there. And I think you can always start a conversation and just see because the worst thing they can say is no.
1: Mm-hmm. Where I normally start with clients is, What are the assumptions that you're making right now? Often people come from an industry where they have the industry experience. They have their own experiences of the pain points. They have an idea of something that will solve that. And it's easy then to sit in that space of your own knowledge and not validate that with other people. And to me, that's part of the value of having product managers and people that know the process but don't necessarily know your context. Because as I will say to clients, I'm not slow. So if you can't make this make sense to me at a high level, you've got no chance of making it make sense to an investor because I'm prepared to listen to you a lot longer than an investor is and probably a, a prospective client as well and workshopping that with other people. I love that you mentioned outliers as well because that to me is where those broad conversations are very important. I see products sometimes that have been developed for a client that people believe that they can easily commercialize to the rest of the industry. And when you really dig into it, the client that it's developed for is an outlier, which means you know, it doesn't, doesn't apply. What do you see as some of the common mistakes, and we, we've started talking about that already, that founders make when they're trying to identify problems and define their problem statements?
0: Well, I think going back to the outlier – What's really tough is if you have the first person that comes on board or one of the first people that come on board that really support you. Like that is a really addictive feeling as a startup. <laughs> and if one of those happened to be an outlier, you can find yourself in all sorts because you almost get caught in a kind of trap of loyalty where you feel like, oh my goodness, you took a chance on me. Now you're saying this and I really want to deliver that to you. But mm. when you start to talk to more people, you realize actually that's not going to serve greater masses so that's a really challenging one the other big thing as well is chasing every dollar not every dollar of profit and this might be controversial is good dollar and i I am very very and it's taken a while but i'm very strong on being a value-led business Uh, Mm. and that took probably two years of my journey to fully feel comfortable with that but now it is paying dividends so i think really working out who you want to be as a business at, from very early doors is very important.
1: Yeah. I, uh, there's so much in that. The uh, I think that if we go back to the outlier piece, it's very hard when someone wants to give you business to not just want to do whatever it is it takes to win that business. And so one thing that I will work on with clients when they are in that situation is great. Let's, let's build with this client, but let's also validate their asks with other people in the industry to work out what is common requirements and what is common workflow and what is going to be custom work. Because even if you do, and you know, I've been the first product manager in a couple of startups where they're at that point of scaling And normally have better processes now of onboarding people and delineating, this is what our product does. This is what would be custom work. This is what we can't do. But then you've got those legacy clients where they had an early version of it that really is a custom piece of software that you are now essentially chained to maintaining for them. And often, particularly when we're talking software, if those early customizations aren't fully documented and accounted for every time you do a new release, you break those customizations that the client relies on and, you know, end up with very unhappy people. So that there's no way to avoid some of that at the start, but part of that assessing your scalability, etc., is great. We're building this for you right now, but we want to scale this product. So partner with us to do it and bear with us while we triangulate your requirements against something else. And then if we find that this is a specific requirement for you, we can do that for you, but it's going to have extra costs attached to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's a journey, right, to get to that point. But if we can help a couple of startups before they get to that point, we've done well.
1: Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And and then I think the other piece that you mentioned there in terms of the the kind of temptation to chase every dollar, when you have no dollars, again, it's very hard to say no. But part of working out like what what your values are what that north star is of what we're on about can help determine that i did some things for clients early on in my like freelancing/consultancy that i don't do anymore and part of part of that is realizing that is not a great way to make money or that the expectations don't match etc you still have to deliver on those things but i i know you know the, the how much the cost of easy money actually builds up and can turn into a really negative impact
0: absolutely and I think in the end you end up standing for nothing and it may, makes you unmemorable um, so if you can have a point of difference and hold fast uh, opportunities that you don't even know existed will appear later on down the track because you are doing something a little bit different
1: yeah well I think that that fear of desire to win work can make you afraid to niche you try to be everything to everybody, whereas the more specific that you can be at the start, April Dunford, I love her work on market positioning. And part of what she talks about is like find a ridiculously small niche and mm-hmm. try and start there, because if you can serve them well, you can then work out how you can serve other niches. And it's scary, because then you're you're saying no to other things, but part of working out, like, what are we on about? Who are we going to serve right now? And that's been my... My own journey with the product bus has been sure I can help startups to actually what I can do really well, what we now can do really well is bootstrap mm. founders. That's a space where we know that we add the most value, where we also believe that they're underserved, which then means that there are some clients that are not a good fit. And the best thing that we can do for them is help them see that and find a good match. We can't take everybody's money.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> Love it. Um
1: so let's let's do a theoretical here knowing everything that you know now if you if you were starting from scratch on a new a new startup idea how would you approach it so new 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 field new product what would you do to begin
0: Well, you know what? I would jump out of the reddest of red seas. I don't think I've, you know, as a startup, we've gone up against, you know, Airbnb, booking.com, you know, just these tiny players on the world screen. And I I tell you, my next one would not be that. And also a product-based where you make it for X and if you can sell it for Y, then you continue <laughs> to make it. Tech startup can be a pit of development, uh-huh. and it is a lot of upfront costs. If you are not careful in terms of market validation, mm. it can be a never-ending, a never-ending thing. So that would be my next startup. You make it for X, you sell it for Y, Scotty.
1: <laughs> <laughs> one one thing that I really like in the idea validation stage is, and we're just starting a new idea validation cohort and I'm doing one-to-ones with those participants at the moment before we start our group sessions. And I'm really trying to test out, like, how flexible are they in terms of their willingness to pivot the idea if they need to? Because, like, I think there's, in our idea validation stage, challenging our assumptions about not just who wants it, what problem we're solving, but also what the end point of this is if that's really fixed in our mind that, like, I've got to have a company, it's got to be my own thing, it's got to look like this, et cetera, you know, that that can be very limiting. But, you, you know, you learn stuff and it might be that this thing is not going to work and it might be the next thing that you do that actually, you know, applies that. So don't put all your eggs in that basket.
0: A hundred percent. And don't uh, sell the house to do it. Make sure oh, you amen. do it, don't- you know, exactly. <laughs> do it small. Work it yeah. out. And then, like, there's nothing worse than finding yourself between a rock and a hard place. Could be because you've overcommitted, and then you can't let go of it because you're holding so tight because you've put too much of your money in it. A
1: hundred percent. And this is where I feel like that a lot of the, as we were discussing before we started recording, a lot of the startup content and uh, events that are out there for early founders don't actually serve bootstrapping founders well because they, what they preach are the principles that you use to validate ideas when you've got some money already. So there's a big, you know, that I get really irritated when I hear people saying, you know, just build it, ship it, and move on because that's what you do when you've got a few hundred grand or a couple of million of seed investment and you're using that to spend 30 grand on an MVP to work out will people like this or not. But people take that advice and they spend 30 grand, which is all they have, on that MVP and then find it's not sellable. Where do you go from there? And that that's one of the reasons why we're focusing on that community in this podcast is to say, like, actually, you can do that validation without touching. And you shouldn't be. You should be touching, but without actually touching development mm-hmm. and starting on that process. And I use the analogy, it's a bit like if I decided that I think I wanted to build a house, and then I invited a builder over to my block of land to start riffing on what that would be. Like, you would never do that. You go to an architect, you get plans. You don't go, yeah, it's going to be like, you know, I reckon three stories and whatever, and I'll just, I'll come back and see how you're going. Like, we would never do that. But people do that with software. They do that with developers where they're like, sure, you know what to do, don't you? I'll come back and then... And then they're surprised when they come back and it isn't what they thought it was going to be, if it's anything at all, and they've wasted their money.
0: Absolutely. You know, I've got two wonderful co-founders who are developers now and, you know, that's almost the holy grail of tech startups having those guys on board because it means that you are not necessarily spending money on on things that you don't have and they're involved and they're a part of that journey. I can't tell you how many tech founders I know that are just – skipping from one developer to the next because yep. developers will develop, right? They yep. they will just, yep. they love to develop and most yep. of they're getting paid. So they'll just keep yep. developing for you. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting closer to a solution for your customers. It just means that you're developing more. So mm. it can be a real battle. And the other thing, which might be a bit controversial, but, you know, we all know the figures with startup and in relation to failure rates and all the rest, It's it's massive. Mm. But I think a lot of it comes from that idea and you touched on it, this idea of bigger, faster, uh, throw money at it. Um, That will be the way you do it and you have to grow as quickly as you can. I can tell you, if I got investment at the start of my journey, I would be out of business because yeah. I would have made mistakes, but on a bigger scale and would have blown mm-hmm. through all of that money and thought, oh my goodness, there's no way forward from this. Rather than having to do it in little bits, making those mistakes with little bits and then reiterating and readjusting um, Mm. and finding a way through. So I think, you know, sometimes investment is seen as the holy grail in startup, but a lot of the time I would say it's a large reason for why startups go under and the pressure of growing faster. It's not how businesses, sustainable businesses are made.
1: No. That's not going to be controversial here. Yeah, (laughs) that's what we're about. (laughs) It might be controversial. No, but I mean, I I think it's it's more an education piece for um, early stage founders because obviously, uh, when you look at the networks, the you know a lot of the events, etc., they are funded by people who have a financial interest in backing companies that have a likelihood of being successful and so it's not so much that it it isn't i think predatory by design but it can turn into that when people if they have nowhere else to to go and what i what what we find with some of our like bigger projects where you know it can be a bit like the ramsey's kitchen nightmares of startups where you're like oh my god how did this happen And you've got a poor founder who's really tried their hardest to get something done, hasn't gotten there, doesn't know why, has the humility to say, I think I need some help here. And often you find is that they've they've got the passion, they've got the idea, and then they've been just kind of flung around like they're in a pinball machine by mentors and people giving them feedback that's pretty uneducated and not contextualized to go, just build something, just get it out there. And that for your, your bootstrapping founder, who's still in their day job, who's saving every penny to build what they believe in, that's the worst advice that you could possibly give. It takes longer, but actually then what you get is something that is more validated and and lower risk to yourself. Because, you know, if you find, you know what, this didn't work or this really isn't for me, then, okay, you spend a bit of cash, you spend a bit of time, but you haven't Dashed your entire livelihood on something that was bound to fail.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, when we think about identifying the problem, finding that problem that's going to motivate people to change their behavior to solve, if you could only give a founder one piece of advice in tackling that, what would it be?
0: I'm going to say. You need to talk to as many people as practical about it—not friends, not family—and you have to actually talk to them. Not don't outsource it to a you know a company that can go and do surveys for you and whatever. You have to make the cold calls and speak to these people about their pain points and work out whether it aligns with what you think their pain points are. There is There is actually no shortcut to it. It is just Mm. a lot of uncomfortable conversations for people who don't like cold calling, but get in touch because if you do it the right way, relationships are formed and they can become your first customers as well.
1: I'm an extroverted introvert. So like I, I can do people, I like people, but I recharge on my own. And I think I'm also that kind of typical male that I would rather spend three hours Googling to find something than have to make a phone call. Yeah, you know, how how does that work against people in that? Because like that whole thing of you go pick up the phone for some people that's super easy and for other people that's like I would rather drive nails into my eyes.
0: Yes, and look I would probably <laughs> consider myself an extrovert and I still don't like it. I, it cold calling <laughs> is so uncomfortable because you get cold calls yourself and all you want to do is hang up on them, right? <laughs> because they're annoying. And so you don't want to be that annoying cold caller. However, It is your business and you have to do Mm. whatever it takes to get it off the ground and you don't get to handball something just because it's uncomfortable or just because you don't like doing it. And if that's Mm. the best way to connect with your customers, uh, then that's what you have to do. And if they are hanging up on you, then maybe your solution isn't as good as you think.
1: Mm. Um, One thing that I've done, obviously this really depends on the industry or the persona, is that if you can find groups on LinkedIn or social media where those people hang and tell them that you're looking to talk to people that do these certain jobs, et cetera, where at least they've kind of given you permission to contact them. But again, it really depends on who you're serving. Some people do jobs where they don't join Facebook groups to say, you know, I'm an admin for a NGIS provider, right? And if which which is a group we're trying to talk to at the moment, we had to really then find find where those people are to to even identify it. But there are people absolutely that the only way that you're actually going to get them is pick up the phone, particularly in customer facing, in retail, in those places. And and I've seen people do everything but with spending three k a month on Facebook advertising. It's like, cool. Are they on Facebook? Do you know they're
0: on Facebook? How are you targeting them? Oh. Absolutely. And, you know, we're a website business and it would be wonderful if all of my customers and guests just miraculously found us on the website and just did everything all through our automated system. doesn't work like that. You actually still have to build relationships in the real world to make this work.
1: Mm, I love it. Now, I, I, that's advice I constantly have to give myself. It's a nature thing you know, I, I don't like talking on the phone. I will I would rather Google to find a, something that I can book online, even if it takes me an hour. But there are times where, and definitely when it comes then to relationships, to building that, there are times where a phone call solves a lot of stuff that an email will never solve. 100%. Right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We'll definitely have to have you back and maybe we can talk a little bit more about your own journey right now we're really focused on trying to give these bootstrapping founders as much practical advice as we can and you've really contributed to that so thanks very much for your time oh it's my
0: pleasure scotty thanks for having me
1: and that's it for the bootstrap for this week New episodes are coming every Thursday with the occasional bonus episode like today. So don't forget to subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we would love a positive rating and review to help other people find the show. We are working on our social media presence, but for now, you can find The Product Bus on most platforms and interact with The Bootstrap posts there. We would love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and The Product Bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, And Declan McGee. This episode was written and produced by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mix by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbust.com and get in touch.